always do that, and that's usually why I'm kind of a pessimist, because I get inside my own head instead of the, the, the Word of God, and I try to make things become what they're not supposed to become, and I take God out of the equation, and so my hope does not shine through. And so when my hope doesn't shine through, my identity is not found in the things that I hope for from a Christ point of view. My identity is found in the things that I hope for from I hope things don't turn out as bad as I want them to, in my pessimistic attitude. Now, now think about that for a moment. Think about people, particularly those who have probably gone through some really hard storms. My mother is a, is a, a two-time cancer survivor. She's, she's in remission currently, but she's doing these, uh, this, this chemo pill she has to take, and they keep changing her medication and all this stuff. And in the middle of all this, I remember her calling me and saying, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, tomorrow morning I'm having surgery uh, at 530. We're doing this and this and this. She lives 250 miles away. I'm like, Mom, you can't call me at 8 o'clock at night and say I'm having surgery at 530 tomorrow. Your pastor's son who goes to hospital visits is not going to be able to get to his mother in time to be there at the hospital. She goes, what are you going to do? You going to do the surgery? You see where I get it from? I said, no, Mom, you're right. She goes, but you can wake up at 530 and you can pray for me and the surgeon, can't you? Yes, ma'am. I sure can. My mother, though, as we began to talk through her cancer, one of the things she told me, she goes, you know, I just don't think God actually woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to give her cancer. She says, I can't believe that. She says, I believe that we're people of a fallen world and bad things happen because we're separated from the love of Christ. And in these bodies, bad things are going to happen. We're going to continue to have challenges and sickness and illness and accidents and wrecks and all these sort of things. And they're not going to be what we want them to be. She goes, but God doesn't just wake up and say, that's the one I'm going to curse today with cancer. That's just not how it works. She says, and because that's not how it works, I can put my hope in him no matter what. So whether this cancer gets me or it doesn't this time, I can put my hope in him because he doesn't change. And I saw that identity in my mother be one of her identity in Christ, not in her identity in chemo, even though she took 52 treatments. Do you see what I'm saying? Is that when we have an identity in Christ and our hope is in Christ, it overflows and people see that. And it becomes attractive to them because what they've been doing, what they've been hoping for, doesn't work. And they're beginning to realize now why that is. And so if you have your Bible with me this morning, I would, I would invite you to open to me uh, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read a couple of verses this morning, kind of break this down. I want to show you why it's important to have an identity in Christ and to bring your hope from that place. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. Now I want to keep in mind as we read this, just I want you to consider the audience for a moment. Peter was actually writing to five different provinces throughout Asia Minor area and around the, the, the Greco-Roman territories of the time. And so there were five very distinct places where this letter would be written and be passed along to be read. And so when you see that, you, what you actually understand is that these five different provinces have different uh, cultures, they have different languages, they have different foods that they eat, they have different habits, they have different trade, they have different skills. They're different. But yet the same principle applies as Peter is reminding them that their hope is not in whatever their economy may be or whatever their situation may be. Their hope is in Christ alone. And as new believers, particularly those who were not Jewish believers, are getting this letter and they're hearing this, what they're going through is a time of suffering. And Peter is saying, let me offer you hope where you may not know where it is. Or let me remind you to stay in a place of hope because you've been looking elsewhere and your hope will never be found there, but it will always be found in Christ. And so stay centered there. And so as we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he's going to actually show three things. And the first thing he's going to say is the reason why your identity can be wrapped up in Christ and you can have hope 
is because that all of us are stones of the same building. Now, as he writes this letter, he's writing to believers. He's not writing to non-believers. And he's writing to these believers in all these different places. And he's saying, by the way, you are stones of the same building. And let me clarify that. And so as he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, he says, as you come to him, being Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So uh, to the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do so. Now, what Peter is saying this is that Jesus showed up. He was the answer. He was told to be the answer for a long time. And if you've ever done any sort of masonry work or any sort of stone work or anything that requires something to be square and to function down the road where you don't get a cumulative error. So if you're off just a little bit at the beginning, by the time you get to the end, you're going to be off a whole lot and things aren't going to happen. You want to see what that looks like? Come over to my house because the bricks on the right side of my house are about a half an inch hanging over the foundation. And it just tells me that somebody didn't know how to read a tape measure. And so when my house falls down, it'll probably fall to the right. So I feel sorry for that neighbor. So we stay on the left side of the house. That way we just keep everything balanced, right? No. Peter says what happened here is that this Jesus, this, this promise that was made to you, everybody else looked at this, particularly those who knew the law and who knew the prophets and who knew the Old Testament, all those guys, they looked at this and said, no way, this is the guy. Throw that one out. That's not the cornerstone. That's not the answer. That's not the solution. That's not the foundational piece that we can build this house on. And what Peter is saying is they rejected him and said that he wasn't good enough. When in all reality, not only was he good enough, he was the one who would set the plumb line. And all the foundations of the earth and all the foundations of belief and faith and all the hope that you could possibly have don't rest on anything else except that capstone, that cornerstone, that one piece that is laid first. And when you lay that piece first, you just work from there. It's kind of like anybody ever do a jigsaw puzzle. Are you corner pieces or are you inside piece persons? We're corner people around us, right? And then we're edge people and we do all those sorts of things. And so you lay that piece, and what do you do? You start working from there, right? And so many times we think, well, I can work from all the four corners, but what, what Peter is saying, you cannot. There is but one, and he is Jesus. And if you hope for any other strategy or any other way out of this, you're, you're not going to make it. And so you Christ followers in these five provinces all over the, 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 the area of Asia Minor and the Greco-Roman world of the time, you have the same cornerstone, which means you have the same hope. You don't have a different hope in Brookshire that you have in West Columbia or that you have in, in Groves or Port Arthur. It's the same hope in Jesus Christ. And, 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 and that's easy for us to say. But what's hard for us is to realize that we all actually suffer the same way because of our belief in Jesus Christ. Because we like to hold on to our suffering like it's a, a, some sort of a, 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 a badge of honor. Oh, I suffer so badly in a certain way. You never understand that. I got news for you. We all have a pretty good understanding of what suffering is, and we try to minimize that suffering in others to make ourselves feel a little bit better, when in reality, instead of identifying in our suffering, what we ought to identify is in our hope. And this is where Peter is telling the first century church, be careful, because all the foundations that are being built up from that cornerstone are actually from the law and the prophets 
of those of, of the past who have taught us. And those Pharisees and the Sadducees and the really smart guys from Jerusalem had all this information and all this knowledge. And guess what? They put their hope in the Old Testament. They put their hope in Moses. They put their hope in the prophets. But whenever Jesus showed up and said, I am the hope, and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, they missed it. They said, no, we're going to reject that. And as a result of that, as Jesus began to lay truth down, he not only became the cornerstone for those who believed and had hope, he also became a stumbling block for those who didn't want to obey the truth. Now, we have a lot of stumbling blocks, especially in Christianity. Christianity is probably one of the most messed up of religions. Because to be perfectly honest, it's way too simple on this hand to say, hey, Jesus is it. That's all we need. No, there's got to be more to that. No, you, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that's what you need. No, there's got to be more than that, right? I have to stop doing this, and I can't do this anymore. And if you're Baptist, you can't drink or smoke or date people who do and all that stuff. You know, all those things. And we have all these rules, and it's messed up because we go to these, these worldly ideals and thoughts, and we get out of the Scripture. And then what we do is once we get inside this organization and we have this whole idea of Christianity, we start to, to placate and start to make a lot of things in this world okay because I go to church on Sunday or I'm around other godly people or whatever. And we get away again from the cornerstone, and our hope is not found in there. Our hope is found in what others say it's okay. We all do that. That's part of human nature. We, we flock towards people who are like us and, uh, and agree with our lifestyle and the way we do things. That's just part of culture. And what Peter is saying is the culture ought to be one who's built on the foundations of the hope of Jesus Christ because, by the way, you're all built, you're all stones of the same house. And so if one of you pulls out of the wall, the whole wall crumbles, but the foundation stays in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be built up, and we're being built up. And every brick that's on the bottom actually carries the weight of the one above it and the one above it and the one above it. And so as we grow in Christ and get more in the knowledge of him and our hope continues to be in him, others will say, I'll lay a brick on top of you because I see your hope and identity is in Jesus Christ. But if your hope and identity is not in Jesus Christ, you're on a, on a shaky foundation. Well, the second thing Peter actually shows us is in the same passage, and he says to us this, that we're actually priests of the same temple. And this is a very foreign idea. Because the ideal of being elevated to a priest means that we just set someone aside. We, we elevate a, a particular individual. And Peter is bringing in the same ideal that Paul will bring in as well in other parts of the Bible and saying, actually, if you are in Christ, you're a priest. And you're called to the ministry of reconciliation. And you are a, of a holy priesthood, each and every one of you, set apart from the rest of the world to be a declarer of the truth. The same truth that people are going to disobey and stumble over. And so if we are all priests of the same temple, then we need to understand how do we live that way. Now I'm getting somewhere, so hang on with me. Let's read uh, 1 Peter chapter, four, or, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. First of all, chapter 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now let me let you in on a little secret here that a lot of people who've been in church for a very long time don't know. Are you ready for this? Your pastor is not a mercenary. He is not hired to go out and proclaim the gospel to the community on his own. You don't get to say in my church, when it comes to sharing the gospel and telling people about Jesus, we got a guy. That's not how it works. What Peter is saying here is you are the guy. Each and every stinking one of you, you are the guy. 
And if you're thinking we got this person who is elevated up and let's put him on a pedestal and, oh, he's been to seminary, big whoop. By the way, 50% of all seminary graduates are out of ministry two years after they graduate. Do you want to know why? Because they go to churches where people don't understand the priesthood of the believer, where they have a responsibility to be a foundational stone of the same house and to be a priest of the same temple who have been saved by the same grace of Jesus Christ who you may not be an eloquent speaker and you can't get up here and parse a bunch of words and put things together, but you have relationships with people in your workplace, down the street where you live, where your kids play ball, and you can show them the hope you have in Jesus Christ. Because after all, in the Old Testament particularly, I gotta tell you, priests didn't get up and do what I do. That's not, that was never their job. Prophets would get up, but usually when a prophet got up and spoke, it was scary. Everyone gather around. I'm gonna tell you how God's about to judge each and every one of you going to be a fun Sunday morning. Let's take the offering first, right? What a priest's job was, was to lead you in worship and to offer sacrifices. That was his job. That's really all he did. There was not a whole lot of the priests getting up and proclaiming what was going on. In fact, when they would read the scriptures, and that's pretty much all they would do when they would gather in the temple, somebody would come in, open a scroll, another guy would come over with a stick, literally, and go word for word to make sure that the holiness of God's word was read correctly. And he was just some guy that was randomly selected uh, along the list who lived in the community. He was not a, a priest. The priests were set aside, and they were to live a life differently so they could offer sacrifices on your behalf and lead you in the worship of God. But they were not the only people in town. They led you to worship God so that all of us could worship God. And so when Peter says we're priests of the same temple, we are a chosen race, what he's saying is we're not who we were when we came into this world because we've been transformed in Christ, each and every one of us. And the way that you demonstrate that transformation is understanding that whenever I put my hope in Jesus Christ, it is reflective in my lifestyle and other people see that. And my identity no longer is this troublemaker or this crazy, you know, whatever out here. My identity is one of those crazy Christ followers. My identity is one who is submitted to Christ. And that when my hope is in Christ, I reflect him because of the transformative work that he has done and that he did on the cross for me once and for all. And in order to be called to that royal priesthood, because apparently that's a good thing, you want someone to, you know, you want to be proud of, uh, of who your priest is or what's going on, which is great. You're him. You're her. Now, clearly, there's some, some things throughout Scripture that clarify those things. But the last thing we ever really want to do is say that we've got a professional minister around here. Because I gotta, be I gotta tell you, that has been the death of the church for a really long time, is that we have a professional minister. And to be fair, one of the things that I hope for through this whole COVID thing, to be perfectly honest, is that nobody ever gets to say, well, I go to this church because of this pastor, I go to this church because of this program, I go to this church for that. Guess what? When COVID locked down and people couldn't go to church and all those things couldn't happen, all of a sudden this new identity in Christ was not about all the things your church offered, about how pretty the carpet was or the stained glass windows or how many children's programs or how long the water slide was. None of those things mattered anymore. What matters is, is that no matter if it's a big building or a gymnasium with wires and stuff running all over the place, our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And because our hope is in his, him alone, those who are not here for whatever reason, they need to see that in us before they hear that in us. And the way they see that in us is that we live a holy lifestyle. And if you have to be a priest, be a priest. But please, for the love of God, seriously, do not become a monk. 
don't live this monastic lifestyle that says I will close myself up and just be holier than me all by myself and never let anybody see that. As far as I'm concerned, this little light of mine just got covered up. Don't be that person. You're a priest of the same temple, and Peter is pleading with these five different provinces of all these people in all these different places, just as he's pleading with us and saying, listen, just out of curiosity, are you struggling right now? Are you suffering? Are things a little harder? Have you considered for a moment that if you would put your hope in Jesus and trust in that, instead of just receiving all the things that the priests are pouring down and giving to you, that you actually stood and said, I will actually be a giver of grace instead of just a recipient of it. And I will assume the role of priest, a holy priesthood that God himself called me to. Many, many years ago, my, my wife and I, I'm going to tell you another bad story on your pastor for a minute. We, we eloped, and then about a year and a half later, we decided to get married, and we went to the church that we'd been visiting. We, we weren't really regular, to be perfectly honest with you. It was a nice church, big cathedral, windows, you know, carpet, the whole thing. And we go to the, the associate pastor and say, we'd like to get married in this church. And he, he didn't act in a measure of grace that I appreciated. Let's just put it there. And he says, well, aren't you already married? been married for a year now i mean what's the difference between getting married in this church versus getting married at the justice of the peace you guys just want to use our church that's really all you want it for now those of you who know me know that i just nodded my head and said yeah that's not what happened i looked right at him and i said are you an ordained minister and he says yes i am i says it wasn't enough that god himself called you to the ministry you had to have punch and cookies and bring your grandmama to a nice ceremony The fight began about then. Let me tell you something. Not my finest hour. We walked out of there, not friends, not resolved of anything. And the pastor, the senior pastor called and said, church is yours. You just tell us what you want. We were just as married at the JP as we were a year and a half later. I wasn't in the best of place as a human being, as an adult, as a man, as a husband at all. And what I should have been was more of the priest and less of the participant. The guy wasn't totally wrong when he called me out like that. But to be perfectly honest, so many times we look at the pomp and the circumstance and we don't realize just the simplicity of the moment. That every single opportunity, I have an opportunity to reflect the hope that I have and that my identity be in Christ. Not where I go to church, not what I've done or not what I haven't done, not how I give like this person does or how I don't sin like that person does, but who Jesus is in my life transformative. The third thing that Peter actually shows us in this passage is that we're all citizens of the same nation. And we'll read this again in verse 9 and 10. It says we're all citizens of the same nation, and, and that's actually really unique because if any of you have ever traveled abroad, and I've had the, the pleasure of being in 30 different nations over the last 15 years, Americans are terrible people, terrible. And people love to make fun of us because we are just the most arrogant, rude, insubordinate, entitled people you'll ever see travel, ever. And I've been in Asia, and those people are interesting because lines mean nothing to people in Asia. Nothing. And it's not a disrespect thing. It just means if there's a six-inch gap, then I'm going to fill it. And if that means I went in front of 50 people to do it, you shouldn't have had a six-inch gap. It's a space thing. It's not, a, it's not anything else, right? But for Americans, it's like, are you kidding me? I need six feet, right? We're social distancing. 
We're a nation who does that. We take nationality very, very, very strong here. And in fact, it's actually a, a blessing and a curse whenever you start looking at nation building, what it means to be a nation. By the way, the first time the people of God were ever called a nation was in Joshua, whenever they crossed the river into Israel as a common people following God. Before then, they were just people. See, they weren't a nation until they possessed the land that God gave them. And they weren't a nation until they possessed the land God gave them under his submission. Now, let that grab you for a minute. So us as an American nation, what makes us a, what, what, what makes us a nation? We have this land. This land is your land. This land is my land. I gotta tell you something right now. If you were to look at us as a nation right now, you would not see a unified people. And if you do, please show me something that I'm not seeing. And the reason we're not unified is, is because just occupying territory is not enough. We need to be occupied by God Himself, and we're not. And while our money might say one nation under God, we are not one nation under God. Bottom line. And what Peter is saying is, listen, there's going to come a day to these five different provinces who have all these different rulers and all these different things that are happening. And, and, and Nero, who is the emperor at the time, is not always going to be the emperor at the time. There's going to come a time when someone's going to take him out. The Roman Empire is going to be replaced. And all he's saying, you want to know what's going to make you a nation? It's going to be God himself. It's not going to be the land you occupy. It's going to be the one who occupies your heart. And you are people of one nation. And it's not because of a flag that flies over you. It's because of the God that you are under. And so what he says in verse 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so what Peter is saying this entire time is that if you have hope in Christ and your identity is found in your hope in Christ, then what that will actually do is connect you to other people in Christ. And no matter what other differences you have, language, color, facial hair, age, no, none of those things matter. Because the thing that unites us is Jesus alone. And if you get away from the simplicity of that, if you get away from the truth of that, if you get away from the reality of that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because you're going to try to rule on your own instead of being ruled by the one true God who loves you and he's called you to be his people, his prized possession. And so if you're of the same house and if you're of the same priesthood and if you're of the same nation, then you need to be of the same God. And so how do we have that? How do we find that identity, that hope in Jesus Christ? What is, what is the hope for us? Do we just get to stand up and say that we're Christian? Many years ago, I was in Singapore, and we were doing a thing with Campus Crusade, and, and we, we had these cards, and these cards had, there were pictures of them, and we asked these college students, they pick out a couple of cards and, and tell us about these cards and why you picked them and what they mean to you. And so we meet this young man, he's an Indian, and he's there in Singapore uh, studying. He, he actually grew up in New Delhi, and he's there, and he introduces himself, and his name is Stephen. Now, I want you to understand why this is significant. There are not a lot of Indian people named Stephen. And the reason why his name was Stephen, anybody want to guess? He was raised Catholic. And I said, Stephen, tell me about your faith. Oh, I really don't, really don't have a faith. Stephen, tell me about Vishnu. Oh, yeah, I know Vishnu. He's the God of vengeance. Who's God of vengeance? The Hindu God of vengeance. Okay. Stephen, tell me what you believe. He says, I believe I have a final tomorrow, and I'd like to get back to studying. You see, so many times we, we throw out Christianity because it's political, because it, 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 it puts us to a certain way. Many of us would be considered evangelical voters because of what our faith is, right? But at the end of the day, we're probably more known for who we would or wouldn't vote for than who has saved our very souls. 
And that's what the bottom line problem is. And that's what Peter is really struggling. It is easy, especially in times like this, to say that you cannot be a Democrat and still be a Christian. It's easy to say that you cannot be a Republican and still be a Christian. It's easy to say that you can't vote this way because of all the other things that go on and still be a Christian. And unfortunately, what many people have said is that I'm going to move the other direction and say, well, we're not going to really bring Christianity into this other than I'm an evangelical voter. But we're not going to bring actual faith into the picture. You may as well just call me Stephen, the Catholic-raised Vishnu worshiper. It's not any different because it's just political. And, and so, so how do we have an identity in Christ that's more than just saying, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. I checked the box. I went to BBS when I was seven. I got baptized. Great. Somebody held you under the water. 20 extra bucks, I'll hold you under longer. How do we get past that? Our identity is not in something that we have done. Our identity is what has been done for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? I'm going to show you a couple of ways that we can do that. First of all, we can remember the past but invest in the future. And I think Peter was really calling this out, and Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. Peter says, you need to know where you came from, right? Paul says that in Philippians. You need to know where you came from. Don't dwell on that, but understand how did you get from there to where you should be, and that's only through the grace of Jesus Christ. And if your identity is wrapped up in who you used to be and all the things you used to do, instead of the one who saved you, you're going to miss out on that, and your hope is going to be misplaced, and you're going to be disappointed, and you're nothing more than a hopeless, romantic Christian. You're hoping things will be a little bit different, but I'm not going to bring Jesus into the equation. And if you do that, then your identity may not be wrapped up in him. And you need to focus on him. Remember where you came from and who saved you. And he'll change your identity in Christ. And it's going to be uncomfortable in a world who could care less about that. In fact, is hostile to that. We've got it pretty good right now, but I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. These next four to eight years in these United States is going to be difficult for people who proclaim Christianity in truth. It's going to be difficult. Dependent upon who the next Supreme Court justice is, you will see the value of life decrease dramatically. It's going to be difficult. Life at all stages. I'm not just talking about the preborn. I'm talking about those who are a little bit older, who cost the medical system a little bit more money. Maybe we ought not invest in saving those. Sounds awful, but it's coming, folks. You can say, my pastor said it. We just thought he was crazy then, but that dude may have been right. Let me tell you why I can say that with such confidence. We live in a fallen world who has no identity in Jesus Christ. And nothing surprises me anymore when we get away from him. Nothing. You ever have your heart broken? Put your trust in the government and thinking they're going to save you. They'll break your heart every time and they'll take your pocketbook too. That's what they do. That's how it's supposed to be. I'm not anti-government. People can't govern themselves. They've never been able to do that. We want a king like everybody else, they cried out. God said, I'll give you a king. They gave him this guy named Saul, and he'll enslave your children. He'll take your fields. He'll take your money. He'll turn your daughters into perfumers, and you'll never know what your family is again. But you want him? You got him. He was awful. Saul, by the way, means ask for. Be careful what you ask for because God may just give it to you. You want to know how to get your identity in Christ? You remember the past, but you invest in the future. Know where you came from. Know what God's done for you because the future is where God is. And he says you're going to need to endure the present to get there, but the only way you're going to do so is your hope in me. The second thing he says you can do is renew your strength in the Lord. And I think, friends, this is where we are challenged all the time, is that we get a little discouraged. Things don't go the way we want them to. We get a little tired. We get a little run down. And we see that, that, that passage in Isaiah chapter 40, but those who hope in the Lord, those who have a future hopeful outcome in the Lord, 
will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Renew your strength in the Lord. At some point, you have to realize that what you're doing is not getting it done. Isn't that a terrible place to be at the last minute? I mean, I don't know about you, but I wish I'd have figured a lot of things out a lot sooner. It would have been a lot less painful and maybe not cost me near as much money either. I've wasted a lot of money and a lot of time doing things a second time when I should have just hired somebody. I get frustrated. I make bad decisions. I'm trusting in myself. My hope is in YouTube that they can help me figure out this project when really my hope ought to be in Pete the plumber because he gets paid to do that. We need to renew our strength in God, and the way we do that is we get back to his word, and we, 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 we filter out a lot of the other things that are out there, and when we catch ourselves being hopeful in what this world has to offer, we've got we to gotta put that away. We've got to walk away from that and go back to him. And finally, the third thing I want to encourage you this morning is this. Reignite your worship. I think that as Christ followers, one of the things we don't do well is worship. And I think we miss out. And I'm not talking about singing, because that's not all worship is. Worship is submitting yourself to a holy, loving God in all situations, in all circumstances. Singing actually is an amazing thing because it's the only thing that you're able to do with both sides of your brain, and you can't do something else and sing at the same time successfully. Did you know that? When you sing and you worship to God, you're focused on that one thing, and both left and right sides of your brains are working, and they're supposed to work that way. And when the object of your worship is God alone, then the object of your hope is there. And guess what? When the object of your hope is in Jesus, then your identity is in Jesus. And when your identity is in Jesus, guess what the rest of the world sees? They don't see you. They see what you hope for. They see what you hope in. They see the identity that you have in Christ. And so when you reignite your worship, you do what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. I don't like to do worship sometimes. And you know why I don't like to do worship sometimes? Because I'm selfish. Because the last thing I really want to do is not think about me, especially when I'm not in a good place. Because isn't it easy to think about yourself when you're not in a good place? How bad you got it, how hard it is, how tough it is. I get it. Those things, I don't want to do, I don't want to take away from that. But my goodness, Debbie Downer, we're really kind of tired of just seeing all the things that are bad in your life. What about good? Well, it's just really hard to find something good. You know why? Because you're not looking for Jesus. You're pushing him away. You may not want him to be the identity that you actually need and long for. Because to do so means you're going to have to give yourself up. You're going to have to die to self. Two things I can encourage you to do this week. Spend time in personal worship. Turn on KSBJ. Turn on a podcast, a good one. Don't, don't go to one that's just going to make you feel all good with a bunch of self-help and all that other nonsense. That wastes your time as much as it does anything else. Get somebody who's going to read the Bible. Alistair Begg's one of my favorites. That guy's an awesome preacher. Listen to him. Find hope. Spend time just listening to good worship music. Maybe spend less time doing some of that other stuff and wean yourself off of whatever that may be. Put the good stuff in. Sing along for crying out loud. Put your heart in a place of worship, your mind in a place of worship, and then just show others your identity in Christ. You know, an easy way to do that is that when you have the Debbie Downers in your life or the hopeless romantics and whatever it may be, both of them, by the way, are in the wrong place, is that whenever you get to a place where you have an opportunity to be an influencer in somebody's life, put a little Jesus in it. Bring him into the conversation. Somebody asked me the other day about voting and everything else, and I've got to be honest, it's a hot topic, and it's hard to, to pin down and say what I would and what I wouldn't do. 
And what I finally have just kind of come to a place and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust Jesus in the middle of this, and I'm going to ask him who I should vote for and what I should do. And whether that pleases you or dissatisfies you or whatever the case may be, I don't answer to you. I answer to him, and my hope is in him alone. Because whoever we elect or vote for, whatever the case may be, they're not going to fix this. They may delay it a little bit or they may speed it up. I'm actually praying Jesus will, will come back November 2nd. That's just me. Because in my mind, that's the answer right there. I won't have to worry about November 3rd if Jesus will come back on the 2nd. I also want to let you know that we prayed that Jesus would come back before our kids were teenagers. They're 20 and 21 right now, so I may need you to help pray with me. Because apparently it didn't work, right? Show people some hope that you have in Jesus alone. We are easily put worldly standards on a lot of things. Back up. Take a time out. Hey, you know what? Let's go back to the scripture for a minute. Let's see what the scripture has to say about this. Our hope rests in our identity in Christ. And it is easy for us to get off our game. And the last thing I'll say to you in closing this morning is this, is that Satan could really care less about having you on his side. He is just fine with your neutrality. He is just fine with you being stagnant. He is just fine with you not even being fully hopeless, but just not having a hope in Jesus Christ. Not having an identity that points back to the Savior of Jesus himself. My prayer for you this week is that you will have hope in Christ alone and no other. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and bless you. We thank you for the truth of your word and for what Peter has to tell us and as he told those five provinces. And Lord, our hope is in you alone. And that sounds good and it sounds easy, but it's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging because of what we have to give up. And so let us be reminded what Paul said to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, to accept the mercy that's been poured out to us so that we might be of the same household, of the same priesthood, of the same nation, be a people who is drawn together by Jesus himself. Father, we thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us. We pray that your mercy and your grace would follow us in all that we do and that we wouldn't just feel good about what we've done, Lord, to to receive salvation, but that we would also be those priests who give that away, who share that hope and that goodness. And that it doesn't have to be an eloquent sermon, Lord. It just has to be how we live how we trust and who we put our hope in each and every day. And so, Father, I I close this morning by saying I am sorry. I confess to you, Lord, that my hope is not always in you, and it's not always evident. And so, God, in worship this week, I pray that you would engage with me and I with you, and you would be delighted by the worship that I give to you. And I pray that for everyone over here in this place or at home today, Lord, they would worship you in spirit and in truth would be obedient to that truth so they wouldn't find that truth to be a stumbling block. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for Jesus. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us this morning. I pray that